Heavenly Father, we celebrate and we praise your name. Hallowed be your name, Father. And we look forward to and, and long for the appearance of your Son and the entry into his kingdom. And Father, we pray that as we wait here on earth, looking forward to that future day of the kingdom, that you would reign in our hearts, you would reign in our thoughts, that your will, Father, would be done here with us in all that we say and do. For, Father, we know that your will in heaven and in all eternity is and will be done, Father, for you are the author of creation, the author of our faith, the Alpha and the Omega. And we pray, Father, that in all our needs, you would provide, that you would grant us those things we so dearly need, but you would ensure, Father, that it is only what we need that you would grant. Never give us more, Father, than we should have so that it would take our hearts away from following you. And we pray, Father, as well, that you would give us hearts that are forgiving. You would give us, Father, an understanding that even as others have offended us, we likewise have offended. And so, Father, as you forgive with limitless mercy, I pray our hearts would have a similar capacity, Father, that you would give us a heart to always be forgiving. And we pray, Father, that in all the things that tempt us and in all the ways, Father, we may be led astray, that you would protect us, guarding our hearts, leading us, Father, into nothing but righteousness, so that in this world, in our hearts first, and in the, the way we live and in the world as a whole, Father, that your will would be done. And that your glory would be complete. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 34. This chapter is a good example of a pattern. We're going to study a total of three times in the book of Genesis. So we're going to give some time to understanding the pattern of this chapter, of the, of the bigger story and of the meaning behind the events. We started last week in this chapter looking at Jacob's children, grown and living with their father in the land of Canaan, and drawn into or drawn away by the culture that was surrounding them. Remember, the family of Jacob are parties to a covenant with the living God, a covenant that has promises that include a promise to inherit this land that they live in right now. When Israel leaves the land of Egypt in a future day and enters into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, they'll experience a degree of that ownership. But even then, that future moment is still not the fulfillment of everything God is offering in the promises he gave Jacob the promises he gave Isaac and Abraham. All of those promises ultimately are fulfilled in the kingdom that is inaugurated with Christ's second coming. So in the meantime, the Lord is working to build a nation that can accomplish his eternal purposes in leading to the kingdom. And if they're going to fulfill the purposes God has for them, for the nation, that nation has to remain separate. If the Lord is going to work to build a kingdom through the prophets, through the word, through the arrival of a Messiah and on and on, the nation that is destined to produce those things must remain a distinct nation. That's part of God's plan. They can't lose the distinction that God has created from the moment he separated Abraham from his people, because if they were, then the seed promise of the Messiah would be in jeopardy. God would not then be able to fulfill all that he has purposed in the line of the family of Jacob. Now, the problem God has with this is that the family of Jacob is as sinful as any other family on earth, if not more so in some cases. So if they're left to their own instincts, there would be no hope for this family. There would not be a hope for the fulfillment of the mission that God has assigned to them. There'd be no hope for the seed promise. 
And making matters worse, you have Jacob, the man at the head of this family, the patriarch, who seems to be incapable of conquering his deceptive nature and controlling his children who are molded in a like fashion. The sins of the father are already apparent in the trickling down effect to the children. So the story of Jacob includes moments like the one we're studying here in chapter 34. Moments that I call low points in family history where the sin of the family erupts to the point of a crisis. And it's a crisis that threatens to undo God's work by bringing an end to the family of God, by bringing an end to their divine mission. There is going to be a total of three such crises in the life of Jacob and his family, in Jacob's family history. One of those occurs here in chapter 34. The second one occurs in chapter 37. The third one occurs in chapter 38. And they all follow a similar pattern. So let me present the pattern to you now. And then as we study the first of those examples today, as we finish that study in chapter 34, you'll see the pattern itself. The pattern is that first, Jacob's sons will act in sin in some way. They'll make foolish and destructive choices. And in their choices, they place the family at risk. Then you're going to find the second step is Jacob, the absentee father, will take no meaningful action to correct his son's behavior. That's always step two. And then finally, the third step, the Lord will intervene in some fashion to turn the circumstances of the event into something good, thereby maintaining the integrity and the sanctity of Jacob's family and ensuring that his eternal purposes are met. So we're going to see this three times. The sons and their sin, the father and his neglect, the Lord and his faithfulness. So today we're going to finish the first of those three crises. And all of these situations are important because they all have their own impact on the inheritance and the seed promise in the covenant. So today let's look at the the one we started in the first half of this chapter. In the first half, we noted that Jacob's daughter, Dinah, had ventured into the local Canaanite culture, into Shechem, and she went there seeking friendship. And her poor judgment in going after the friends of the world led to an opportunity for evil to take advantage of her. And as we studied last week, she was raped. She was then held hostage, kidnapped. And now her captors are negotiating with Jacob's family to try to keep her forever. And then in what we saw at the beginning of that negotiation last week, Jacob stands by and allows his sons to conduct the negotiation. Now, it's not wrong for him to let his sons negotiate. But what was wrong for him was to listen as the sons seemed to agree to terms that would have been even more tragic for the family of Jacob. There's no evidence he ever intervenes to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, we can't agree to that. He simply lets the agreement appear to go forward. Intermarriage with this culture was the agreement. Now, we know that they were being deceptive when they agreed to that, but Jacob doesn't know that necessarily. He just hears the negotiation. And so he doesn't object Now, the son's requirement is that the men of Shechem will agree to be circumcised. That was their deception. You'll see that now in verse 15, where we begin in the study. I'm going to back up a few verses from last week to help us keep the context. So let's begin there in Genesis 34, 15. Let's see how the negotiation now finishes. And as this crisis comes to a head, what God does to intervene. Verse 15. Only on this condition will we consent to you. If you will become like us. 
in that every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now, their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now, he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to us to live with us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will live with us. All who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Well, the son's deception, Jacob's son's deception, is working. Because in the words of the men of Shechem, they say, these words seem reasonable to us. They return to the city, the young man here, the prince, being the most eager of all of them, he's, we're told. They all return to submit to this procedure. And we're told here that the son is the most respected of his father's household. So this means that he has some sway. He has a persuasive ability in the city. What he says will carry a lot of weight. So the father, the king, Hamor, brings his son into the gate with him. And when we hear that they're in the gate, many of you know from past weeks when we've studied this in the earlier chapters, the gate of the city was a place of meeting for the purpose of conducting city business, like the courthouse of our day, they would sit in the gate of the city to conduct city business. And they've held this meeting now with all the men of the city. They brought them together and they've said, we have an opportunity to make an agreement. And though the word is not used here, it's understood that they're offering a covenant. That the arrangement between Jacob's family and the city is the entering into a covenant or an agreement to become one. That what was previously a city-state on the part of Shechem and a wandering family on the part of Jacob would now become a single entity in the land. And the prince brings this offer to the people of Shechem, citing three advantages for the covenant, three reasons they should take it. First, he says, Jacob's family is friendly with the city. Secondly, he says they will have the opportunity to marry the daughters of Jacob's family. And then lastly... They will gain control of Jacob's livestock and Jacob's property. The only condition for the men would be circumcision. And that was no small concession. I like to imagine how this speech probably flowed. He probably set it up nicely with the, we have an opportunity here. We have a chance to intermarry. They're friendly with us. There's only one small little detail. We have to be circumcised. But then they have the livestock and we have all the possessions. Did he just say circumcised? Did I, did I hear circumcised? What was that middle part again? This is an age without anesthetics. We know that. It's not an age with the sharpest of knives. So the procedure is going to be painful. And not just in the moment, but over the course of several days. And so this was a short-term sacrifice, sacrifice nonetheless, but it brought long-term benefits. And that's the genesis, 
no pun intended, of his argument that there would be short term loss for long term gain. Certainly that's a worthwhile agreement. If we take a look, though, at Shechem's arguments in favor of this relationship, you'll find an interesting pattern. This is a pattern that we, God's people, will encounter regularly in our dealings with the world, with the unbelieving world. First, the opportunity for a relationship between Jacob's family and the city, it rests with the family of Jacob. Jacob's family were willing to be friendly with the Canaanites. It begins with the family of Jacob. The word for friendly there in Hebrew is shalem. It's a similar word to shalom. The difference in the meaning is that shalem means to be devoted to something, to be complete with something. That's the word that's used and we see translated as friendly. Only after God's people are willing to be devoted to the city and to become complete with the city, only then could the rest of this arrangement even be possible. It begins with Jacob. Secondly, the men are seeking to intermarry so that they can absorb Jacob's family into the city. The population of Jacob's family would add strength to the city when they combined with the city. They would make the city a stronger place. I want you to remember the family that Jacob has is roughly the same size as this city. They have roughly the same power. That's why there would even be a negotiation, because the two parties are largely equal in power. One can't dominate the other in this dispute. But do you notice there's no one suggesting that the city of Shechem will become part of Jacob's family. The only suggestion is Jacob will become part of the city. Finally, the end result of this is going to be what? Earthly gain, earthly wealth. The benefit is material. Meanwhile, Jacob and his family have lost a far greater eternal reward. So the earthly and the material will be gained while the spiritual and the eternal will be lost. Hamor and Shechem's statements here perfectly summarize how God's children suffer when we compromise with the world. First, it begins when we make the choice to make friends with the world, just like Jacob did. We're not talking here about being neighborly. The choice isn't between being isolated and separate from the world or compromising with the world. We're talking here about becoming devoted to the world in the way the word meant in Hebrew, to become committed with them, to become complete with them in the way our lives are lived. When we live according to their rules, when we live according to their expectations, their values, that's what it meant for Jacob to enter into this city and to become one with the city, to give up nomadic lifestyle, which was what God had expected. And to become settled in a city. To give up the witness of what God intended for him as as he lived a separate life. And to become one with the culture. To stop being a people God had blessed and to join with a people God has cursed. It starts, though, with Jacob being friendly, being committed, being devoted to that world. And friends, the world remains forever willing to accept us into their way of life. There has never been anything other than an open door from the unbelievers point of view to welcome us into who they are. They would love nothing better than to remove the distinction of Christianity from their culture. The choice is ours, not theirs. Scripture teaches us not to unite with the world, but to remain separate and distinct. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, 
to the believer, he says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what friendship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. So the first mistake is to agree to become part of their world. Secondly, if we make the mistake of such a union, whether we're talking in marriage, in business, in culture or in values, be forewarned. The scripture says we will not sanctify the world. The world will absorb us. God alone has the power to change hearts. And though he works through our relationships to bring faith at times, he has told us to build relationships that do not compromise our walk. So you're only fooling yourself if you establish a worldly relationship on the premise that you will make them holy by that relationship. Those relationships we know from Scripture and from personal experience do not bring spiritual fruit. Sinful compromise does not create holiness in others. It only removes holiness from us. It's the nature of the beast. When Jacob and his family consider a compromise that causes union with the Canaanite city, it is the city assuming they will become like them, not the city will become like Israel. And when our distinction is lost, so is our witness. And then finally, whatever earthly benefits we might accrue by maintaining these kinds of relationships with the world, whatever we might gain by that, we stand to lose a lot more in the long run for having made that compromise. And time and time again, believers will make what I call a devil's bargain with the world. They want the approval of the world. Or they want the acceptance of the world. And then as they make that union with an ungodly world to win that approval, they forfeit their own godliness. They forfeit their own sanctification. And on judgment day, when all of this is made known, Jesus says on the day of judgment, there will be no secrets. So when all of these things are laid bare, then and only then will the loss be fully evident. James says it simply enough. He says in chapter four, verse four. Speaking to those who would marry themselves to the world, to the culture, he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And as it turns out in chapter 34, Israel's offer to unite with the city was not genuine. It was deception. That certainly makes it no better. At least, I guess we can say that it wasn't going to actually happen. But in this deception, as you see, it has started to work. The men of the city were told to become circumcised as a precondition. And so now in verse 24, we're told they do follow that request. They all become circumcised. This procedure is going to be as painful as, as any cutting of skin would be under normal circumstances, of course. But the sensitive location of this particular surgery would result in even more intense pain and particularly over several days time. 
not only because the body has to heal from that, but because there might have been slight infection, a little bit of, of discomfort around that. You might have been running a fever and it would have been difficult to sleep comfortably. That would have led to less sleep, perhaps a little more weariness in the morning. The cumulative effect is that after three days, these men are in great discomfort and in low strength, low reserves of energy. And that would be the perfect time for what Jacob's sons have planned to do. Verse 25. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unaware and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and they took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. So two of Dinah's brothers here, Simeon and Levi, they entered the city on the third day and they began to kill every male in the city. This was probably somewhere in the range of 50 to 100 men. These city states were not particularly huge in the day, so we're not talking here necessarily about thousands of people, but we're talking still about a, a fair number, a number that they could not have tactically had an advantage against except for the consequences of the pain of circumcision. So the pain weakened these men enough that Jacob's sons had the advantage in the battle. And probably from their own experience, having practiced circumcision in their own household, they understood what to expect. They knew that about three days in was the perfect time to come upon these men. And so their deception is played out exactly as they expected. When they reach the king's home, Hamor, they kill him and they kill his son, the prince, the one who raped Dinah. And then they set their sister free. This is a rescue mission, ultimately. And they set her free from the house. Then they begin to loot the entire city. The looting, we're told here, is payback for having raped Dinah. So they take all the livestock in the field and in the city. They take all the children. They take all the wives of the city. And those people would have become slaves or servants to the family of Jacob. Essentially, they wipe Shechem off the map. There's still buildings there. There's still a wall, presumably. But there's nothing in the city. And there's no people. The city is essentially gone and all that it contained, minus the men, has now become part of Jacob's caravan. He's essentially doubled in size overnight. What caused these two boys to do all this, to respond in this way? Well, the clue, I think, comes from their relationship to Dinah. Remember, Dinah is the daughter of Jacob and Leah. Simeon and Levi are the sons of Leah also. They are full brothers of Dinah. And remember, they know that their mother, Leah, is the unloved wife of Jacob. You remember the story as they met Esau and the positioning of all the family members? If they hadn't already figured it out, they certainly knew after that where they fell in the pecking order because Jacob literally put them in a pecking order and put the most vulnerable, the ones he cared the least about, up front. Leah and her children were seen as expendable while Rachel and Joseph were protected. And then to top it off, when Dinah, the daughter of Leah, is kidnapped and raped, the best that their father could do for her was to agree to negotiate a price for her, selling her into marriage. He made no effort to defend her honor, apparently. He makes no effort to defend even his family's honor. He makes no demands of Hamor. 
He gives no thought to the covenant that he's in with the Lord. He only seems concerned on how to avoid a confrontation. And so after years of favoritism on Jacob's part toward Rachel and her son, this boils over now with both Simeon and Levi, and they decide that they have to take matters into their own hands. So they fall back on the family practice of deception. They use it to their advantage, and they go after their sister because they don't trust that dad would do the right thing. Now, we're not excusing their behavior. We're explaining it, and there's a difference. Because they step well beyond what is appropriate and what would be reasonable under these circumstances. To put it bluntly, they murder an entire city of men, which is not justified, not a godly act. Maybe worse, they have just brought a whole city of idolaters into the family of Israel, into the nation that is this young family. They've absorbed women and children who come out of a pagan, idolatrous background. And they're going to cause trouble for the family. And then lastly, they dealt treacherously here with a city state in the land. They entered into a covenant with deception and then they murdered those people after they deceived them. This is not going to sit well with the other city states in the land. Every city in this land is its own independent sovereign entity. And at this point, when the news gets around, the other city states are going to likely take some action to defend themselves from this marauding band that's now moving through the countryside, wiping out entire cities. And that's potentially could cause trouble for the nation. So Jacob has all of these concerns when he hears what his sons have done. Verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me and I will be destroyed. I and my household. But they said, should we treat our sister as a harlot? Jacob's first and it seems only concern in this whole matter is how he is perceived in the land. He knows that his son's treachery is going to make his family a pariah from this point forward in the land. And this is precisely the good outcome that God is working to establish through these sinful behaviors. God uses the sin of Shechem, the sin of Simeon, the sin of Levi to address the wrongs against Israel and to discipline those who were guilty. The injustice against Dinah, for example, it's been paid out, albeit in an excessive way. But the family of Hamor, the family of Shechem brought that against themselves in their sin against Dinah. Remember the Lord's promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, those who would curse you will be made enemies of Israel and I will respond to defend you. And God has allowed this event to bring about that defense. But then you have the sin of the two sons. You see, they are working ultimately to support an aim that God has that is in defending the nation of Israel. But their behavior goes well beyond the boundaries of what would be reasonable. So they have sin here, too. God didn't author their sin, but he used their sin. But because of their sin there is going to be a consequence for them as well, which we will look at in a moment. But in addition to avenging Dinah, their actions also work to good for the nation in the sense that they now give strong incentive both to the nation of Israel and to the cities around them for Jacob's family to remain distinct in the land. They are never going to have another covenant offered them by any other city-state for the chance to intermarry. That option is gone. And it's better that it be gone. The extreme nature of the city's destruction 
will cause the rest of the land to greatly fear and to be very concerned about the family of Jacob, and no one will want to become neighborly with them again. So after hearing their father's protest, the sons respond with indignation. They ask, would it have been better that our sister be treated as a harlot? Now I want you to notice how they describe Dinah there. Our sister. Not your daughter. Our sister. That's significant because as a patriarch, they would not normally have said it that way. They defend her because they know Jacob wouldn't. These sons are guilty of sinful actions, but the seed of that evil fruit was planted by Jacob decades earlier. When Jacob was practicing deception, he was training his sons to deceive. When Jacob was treating his first wife unjustly, he was breeding malice and revenge in his son's hearts. When Jacob was sidestepping his responsibility to settle the jealous dispute between his wives, back when they were under Laban and there was that rivalry going on, when he didn't deal with that, he was teaching his own sons that they have to take matters into their own hands if they want to protect their own interests. And when Jacob was fighting against God rather than resting in God's promises, he taught his sons to live in the flesh rather than to rely on the Lord. You see, sin has consequences, and often they are in other people. So Jacob's first crisis here begins with his children's desire to make friends with the Canaanites, and it ends with a city destroyed, a population wiped out, families broken up, and his family Jacob's family alienated from the Canaanite people. So let's look at God's pattern or God's role in this experience. God turns the crisis to good by ensuring that his people remain separate, that the injustice against Israel is avenged, and yet he will also hold those two sons accountable for their terrible sin. You may remember I said last week as we introduced this chapter that the events in this chapter have an impact on the Messiah's arrival which is why Dinah herself is recorded at all in the genealogy. It's because she, in her role here, becomes a party to the question of the seed promise and where it goes in the family of Jacob. Simeon and Levi are second and third in line to be the patriarch after Jacob because they were born second and third. But because of this sin... Jacob is going to withhold his blessing of them in chapter 49. On his deathbed, when he blesses his next generation in the way that his father and his father before him have done, he will withhold the blessing from Simeon and Levi as recompense for their sin in this moment. Later in this book, we're going to find that Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, will also be disqualified because of another sin that he perpetrates onto Jacob and Jacob's family. So when it's all said and done, the first three sons in the line of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, will all be disqualified from carrying forward the seed promise of the Messiah, leaving the fourth in line, Judah, to receive that promise instead. So in that way, we watch the sin of these boys accomplishing good purposes only because God has the capacity to turn sin to good outcomes. But they do not escape the consequences of that sin, and neither do their families. For the tribes of Simeon and Levi both have consequential impact from the lack of the blessing to come to them. We'll finish with that. We have a time of communion. But I hope you, you contemplate not only the dangers of, a, of an affinity for and a union with the unbelieving world, but a respect for the consequences of sin. And with that, I hope a healthy fear of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the reminder. Thank you for the awesome power that you display in your word to, to see you at work in these grand ways that lives are turned as the rudder is on a ship while everything works out to the good that you have purposed. And yet, Father, in your wisdom and in your perfect justice, the guilty are, are never to go free. The guilty will always be held accountable, Father. And in our sin, we will also be held accountable. But by the mercy that you gave, you displayed through the giving of your Son, our eternal penalty has already been paid so that you can be seen as both just and the justifier of those who receive your mercy. But even as we celebrate in the mercy that is ours by Christ's death, we also recognize, Father, that the consequences of sin are still present and that you may use them both to discipline us and to serve your greater purpose. I pray, Father, you would build your eternity and serve your purposes through our holiness and through our obedience rather than doing it through our sin and disobedience. For that would be better both for your name and for our eternal future. We pray that you'd keep that in our minds, Father, and keep it on our hearts and help us to weigh the consequences of our actions before we take them. And as we go to your word again, Father, to remind ourselves of the sacrifice that made all of this possible, I pray, Father, that we would remember that if so great a price is paid for the sake of our holiness, then it must matter so very much to you. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.